good evening. And uh, I've got that off my chest, but it is, it's my privilege uh, this evening to open the Word of God and, and as the, the occasion and the day really uh, allows for us is to preach on the cross of Christ. Um, and so they're really, uh, yeah, I, I bumped into a, a, another pastor earlier in the week and he said to me, he goes, what are you guys doing for um, Easter? And I said, we're doing a, a Good Friday service and we're doing a service on Sunday and I said to him, I was like, it sounds a little bit Catholic, doesn't it? And, and I, was, I was trying to think to myself, why did I, why did I say that? And I think some, sometimes there's, and it's not, it's, not a, it's not a right way to think, uh, so I'm not encouraging it, but we sometimes fall into that pattern, don't we? We come to every year, another year, another Easter, another year, another Easter. And so it is, it really is a privilege to uh, take the opportunity to look at that, that theme of the cross of Christ and to really think deeply about uh, this incredible reality, and we have an occasion to do that tonight. But there was one English Congregationalist in 1909 wrote this. He said, Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. And he says, you do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. And another man wrote, he said, the cross is the sign of the Christian faith. And he who understands the cross aright understands the Bible. And so it is such a fundamental uh, doctrine to understand what happened on the cross. And so we want to ask that question, what, what, what does it mean? How do we understand it? Like what exactly took place on the cross that's so significant for us as, as Christians to remember and to understand? And if I could do one thing in my ministry, it would be to ensure that, that every man, woman, and child, every one of us, uh, understood this particular doctrine uh, and knew what was going on and could articulate it, could explain it to others, could teach it to their children. Um, and so this, this truth is really the foundation, the heart, the substance, uh, and the, the essence of what our, our faith and what Christianity is. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul, he says, We preach Christ crucified. And if you were to turn over to the next chapter, in First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, um, he, he's more bold and he becomes more explicit and he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and if we could boil everything down in a, in a single word and for sake of clarity, when we're talking about the cross of Christ, we're talking about the atonement. And so that one word... Uh, is what we want to understand. We want to understand the nature of the atonement, the sacrifice, this event that happened and took place on the cross. And so this evening, by way of outline, uh, I've broken it down into three parts, and we're going to look at what's called the active obedience, uh, the passive obedience, and the, the third point will be the substitutionary nature of the atonement. And if Somebody was to say to me, and it has been said before, Andrew, those are three words, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, well, what are, the way I'm thinking here is that if we can understand these three concepts, if we can add them to our vocabulary, um, they're a huge help to us to understanding the, the atonement. And so if you imagine, uh, some of you I'm looking around have got teenage kids, and some of them might be learning to drive the car, and if they were to get in that vehicle and they know nothing about driving the car, there's certain concepts that are really vital for them to understand. So you want to give them certain words like steering wheel. It's a key concept to driving the car 
or things like accelerator or brake maybe is more important. But it's like those are the, when, when you're driving a car, you don't know anything about what you're doing, but th- those concepts are the fundamental things. They're the basics of driving a car. And, and as Christians and as a, as a church family, when we think about the cross of Christ and the atonement, we want to understand the basics. And so these words, the active obedience, the passive obedience, and, and the substitutionary nature of the atonement, these concepts are things that are basic to the, the gospel, basic to our understanding. So um, I said to my son as well, he's sitting up here at the front, Noah, I said, Noah, I'd love children to even understand this. And I said to him, I might ask you a question during the service. And he said to me, he goes, oh, Dad, I'm pretty sleepy. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to go. But anyway, uh, that's, that's my son, Noah, and I love him, eh? <laughs> but anyway... The, um, yeah, so those are the three things, to, the three words, the active obedience, the passive obedience, and the substitutionary nature. And the, the, first, the first of those is, is the passive obedience. And so if you imagine the law of God, what, what God requires of mankind to do, the law of God, um, it requires two things. And the law of God requires what we call penal sanctions, and it requires positive demands. And so this first word, the the passive obedience. Rudolph's laughing at me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Noah understand this if I can. But the, the, the law of God requires two things, penal sanctions and positive demands. And so we, we think this first one, passive obedience, it means the, the penalty that is paid when the law of God is broken. So there's when the law is transgressed, when the law of God is broken, there's a certain punishment uh, that's due. And so if a parent said to their child, uh, I want to give you a commandment or a law, and I say, I want you to clean your bedroom, you might say there might be attached to it a penal sanction, which would be you won't get dinner if it's not clean. And so in that simple way, you can understand how the law of God functions. There's a, there's a, a, a penal sanction, there's a penalty or a punishment when the law of God is broken. And so when we start to think about the atonement, what happened on the cross, There was a breaking of God's law by mankind, and there's a certain penalty or payment uh, that has to be fulfilled. So that's one of the aspects of what Christ is doing on the cross. In a simple way, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you know this, it says the wages, so the payment due, the wages of sin is death. And that's a simple way to understand that, that that when when you sin, there's a penalty of death is attached uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the violation there. So the wages of sin is death, and so death is the punishment that sin deserves. Uh, you, can, you can also see this. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and if you look at verse 41, and this is again, well, this was, came up in one of the scripture readings. It's talking that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Speaking of Jesus, it says, and, when, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. And he said this, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet my will, not my will, but yours be done. And so this, this verse is, is Christ is pray, uh, praying, sorry. He's in the garden. He's, you remember him sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, the, the atonement, the cross of Christ is just in front of him. It's just about to happen. 
and he's, he's in that, that um, immense scene, and he's praying, and we heard that he prays three times for the Lord to remove this cup from him. And I remember a pastor by the name of Paul Washer, many of you have heard of him as well, he, he says he remembers teaching a, a group of young children, and they had, they're all in their desks, and you can imagine them all sitting there, and they were all Reformed children, so they were all brought up learning and memorizing their catechisms, and, um, and they, they faithfully learned those things. I'm not, I'm not having a crack at it. It's a good thing. But they were, he was saying, he was talking about this cup. He was like, what is, what is the cup that Jesus had to drink? And, a, and one of the little girls stood up, put her hand on the desk, and said, the wrath of Almighty God was in the cup. And that's exactly, and he said, that's exactly right. That's, that's what the cup here represents. It represents the, the drinking down uh, and, and the receiving of the wrath of God. If we were to look at Psalm chapter 75, verse 8, it speaks of this cup and it says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. And it says, Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. <laughs> and in Isaiah chapter 51, uh, verses 17, it says, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand, and it says the cup of his anger, which is the cup of his wrath, and it says the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. And another passage in Ezekiel chapter 23, this is verse 32, and it says, you shall drink your sister's cup, and it says it's a cup large and deep. And in the context there, there was the, the sister is uh, pictured with graphic immorality, and it was a cup large and deep, and this sister had been judged by God for it. And it says, You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. And it describes it as a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out. You shall drink every last uh, drop. And so when we think of this first element of, of the atonement or the cross, and we're talking about the passive obedience, the receiving of the penalty for breaking the law. Um, this, is, this is exactly what happens on the cross. So Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's praying. Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way around this, but if it's your will, I will do it. I will, I will drink this cup. And so we can say to summarize this first point that Jesus receives the penal sanctions, the punishment that was due to mankind for breaking uh, God's law. So that's the, the first element of the atonement. The second one I want to highlight to you is the active obedience. So if you remember that saying, the law of God requires two things. What was it? The penal sanctions and positive demands. And so the, the active obedience is, is talking about this aspect of, of God's law, the positive demands of God's law. Um, and so if we think back to that command again for the child to clean their room, you say, clean your room or there will be no dinner. Uh, we're not talking about the punishment, but there's still a command to do something. You have to clean your room. It's no good just not having dinner. The job still hasn't been done. You still have to clean your room. And so this is, the, the, this is what we talk about when we're referring to the active obedience of Jesus, that he actually had to do and keep God's law um, and so if you look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, just as one example, this is the commandment that sums up the whole, actually I'll just read it to you, it sums up the whole law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And so it says, you shall do this. You must do this. And so that's, that's the summing up of the law, of the, the positive aspect, the thing that we actually have to do and fulfill. Uh, so that's, the, that's what the active obedience refers to, the, the positive demands of the law. And if you turn to Luke, um, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and I just want to read you through, this is, again, this is the, oh, sorry, this is the temptation of Jesus. So you imagine, earlier on in the chapter there, Jesus has just been uh, baptized, and so he's just starting his earthly ministry. He's grown up, he's lived, he's been baptized, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and he's just setting out to start his earthly ministry. And, and you see the first thing that happens in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the Spirit of God leads Jesus. The first thing he does uh, in his ministry is to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So the devil is in there doing everything he can to tempt Jesus into disobeying the Father's will or breaking God's law. And it says he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And, and I think that verse is the greatest understatement in the Bible. After 40 days, he became hungry. But, but you can imagine, like, if we get hangry after having a few hours without food, uh, this is an immense struggle. This is, this is not just a, a small trial that Jesus is going through. This is... Uh, absolutely in a human body, absolutely exhausted and at his weakest point, and then he's being tempted and tried by the devil. And you remember those temptations. Uh, The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And you think like that would, like right then in that situation, there, there possibly couldn't be anything more tempting than he could use his divine power to make bread. Uh, but he's trusting in what his father is doing. He's obeying everything his father commands him to do. He's not going to do what the devil tempts him to do. And he answers, he said, man shall not live on bread alone. And then you remember those other two uh, trials. He showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it's been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And what was that command in the law? You shall have no other gods before me. This would break, this would violate God's law. And Jesus is living a perfect life. He's starting his ministry. And, and, and it's as if God the Father is watching. Will he keep my law? Will he fail? Will, like we saw Adam in the garden as a representative head of mankind failed. We now have the second Adam who will represent mankind again. And it's like everyone's watching him. Is he going to fail? Is he going to pass the test? <coughs> and he does. He, he, um, he refuses that temptation. He refuses the next one. Um, and in verse 12 there it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Sorry, verse 13. And it says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And so at the beginning of... Jesus' ministry, the devil has just pounded him relentlessly in the most intense way. And Jesus has resisted the devil. He's, he's obeyed his father. He hasn't given in. He hasn't broken the law of God. 
and the devil, it says, he left him for an opportune time. So that is the beginning of his earthly ministry. And if you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22, and this is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane in uh, verse 39, but, but just before we get there, if you look at chapter 22, verse 3, or verse 2, it says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And so you see at the start of the scene, uh, this Satan enters into Judas, and so he's behind what's going on in this dark scene uh, leading up to the crucifixion. He enters into Judas, and now if you look at Luke 22, verse 39... This is again that, that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And we know what that cup is, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And so you have this immense struggle. Just, and so if you imagine that first scene, that first tense was, that test was right at the beginning of his ministry. This one bookends the end of Jesus' life, and there's another scene where the devil comes in and is testing Jesus, the Son of God in a human uh, body, immensely testing him, pressing him, and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And he's saying, this is the final hurdle. If you will give your life as a ransom, if you will, like right up into the point of death, be obedient to God the Father. And so there's these two great acts of obedience that bookend the ministry and the, the life of Jesus and so this is what we, we, that hopefully starts to give you some sense of what it is uh, that Jesus lived a life of active obedience. He always uh, did the will of the Father. And he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Everything I do, I do to obey the Father. And the other aspect of it there is that, that, that not only was he obedient to the plan of God, to everything God had laid down for him in his life to do, that he would come, that he would die, that he would lay down his life uh, for, for his people, um, but he also kept God's law perfectly along the way. So in Hebrews 7.26, it says that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled. He was separated from sinners. And in First uh, Peter 2.22, it speaks of Jesus as who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And so this is why we speak of Jesus as being sinless, perfectly keeping God's law, perfectly obedient uh, to the will of his Father, and every positive precept that the law of God required, he actually did. So if you think of that analogy again, clean your room or you, uh, you don't get dinner, that the cleaning of the room was the positive action, and Jesus did everything God's law required. He actually loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, right up into the point of death. And so this uh, is to show you that uh, aspect of the atonement that is called the act of obedience. Um, and, and you can see as well that as he's about to sacrifice his life, 
um, all these, these both aspects of um, the penal sanctions, the positive demands, the, the receiving of the penalty and of the doing everything the law requires, it qualifies Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice. If you remember in the Old Testament, it had to be a, a sinless sacrifice, a, a, a lamb without spot or blemish. And so he is the perfect uh, qualified person to uh, be sacrificed. Um, but to, to tie that all together, John Murray said of Jesus, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfect, perfectly met both the penal and preceptive requirements of God's law. And to help everybody understand that, he cleaned his room as well as receiving the punishment. It's, um, so the, the law of God is in every sense complete, fulfilled, um, both the punishment and the keeping of God's law. The third uh, thing I'd like you to know about the atonement is, um, is that it was substitutionary. And so that's a, it's a word to help us understand uh, exactly what, how the transaction played out when Christ died on the cross. I mean, we hear you say, he died for our sins. He died for our sins. And we're like, but what, is, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that somebody died for our sins. How can somebody else be punished and somehow that is good for me? Like if, if, do you know what I mean? Like it should be on an individual basis. Uh, and so we, we're trying to understand how is it that Christ's death, uh, what does it mean for us? And the word substitution is, is really helpful. Some raise an objection. They complain that the ideas of substitution or place-taking are simply outrageous. They say in the legal realm, personal guilt is non-transferable. The punishment to be borne by any given person can under no circumstances be substitutionally taken over and atoned for by another person. And so they, they, they literally, they, they hear this word, substitu- a substitutionary atonement, and they think that is, that is not possible. You can't, somebody cannot be punished for somebody else's sin. That's not how the world works. And so that, that's the objection they raise, but I want you to look in your Bible. If you turn to the book of Isaiah, and the Bible is full of the language of substitution. It'll say things like, he bore our sin in his body on the tree. Our sin he bore in his body. That's the substitution that takes place. So you can think of it as, as on, a, on a rugby field. You know that one player comes off, and who comes on? The substitute comes on, so it's, it's an exchange. One comes off and another takes his place. Uh, so it's um, that's helping us describe what's happening on the cross. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 53, the passage I think most of you probably know by heart. I want you to notice the, the substitutionary language that it uses. And so it might not make sense for us how somebody can be punished for somebody else's sin, but that's exactly how, how God has set things up and how he's working. And so as I read this, I want you to notice the substitutionary language, but I want you to, to see, uh, it'll say things about him, and it's speaking of Christ. So it will say, he gets this, he does this, and it'll say, we get this, we, we all deserve this. And so notice, as I read it through, the, the, the different things that are, are dished out, as it were. So it in 53 verse 1, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. 
He had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him. So there was nothing about Jesus that, that made him you know, appear like a great person. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. And so you start seeing things he gets. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4 says, Surely our griefs... He himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And, and I believe that the, the true people, in the truest sense, this verse, I don't want you to think it doesn't apply to us, but in the truest sense we see in this passage, this is the Israelites looking at the one whom they, uh, as a corporate people, who they hung on the cross and they rejected him they they esteemed him stricken by god smitten they thought this is a heretic a false teacher and so this really is a is the confession of these people coming back to faith in christ but we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of god and afflicted and it says but he was pierced that's what he gets for our transgressions that's what we contribute he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening For our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silenced before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That means he was, he was killed for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke, or you could think the punishment, to whom the stroke was due. And so I think I could keep reading, but I think you get the, the sense and the, the substitutionary language uh, that's, that's taking place as, as Christ is punished on the cross. And I was reading during the week, and one author said the original Hebrew text in this passage in Isaiah 53, it says, is even more forcefully uh, made more forcible by an emphatic use of personal pronouns. And so when it, when it talks about things like surely our sickness, it says it like this. It says, surely our sickness, he bore them, and our pains, he suffered them. And so the, the Hebrew stresses this even more. We read it a little more smoothly as it's translated, but it says, Their iniquities, he will bear them, for he, the sins of many, he bore them. And so there's this almost this just blunt way of saying, he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And so the, the, the language of substitution is not something that we look at and think, oh, that's not possible. This is the exact language of Scripture. This is exactly what is taking place uh, on the cross. So... If we were to summarize through that passage and think of all the things he gets, it says he was despised and forsaken. He bore our grief and carried our sorrows. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastened. He was scourged, which means to, to whip. And you think of, of the, the scene there or to cause great suffering. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was slaughtered. He faced judgment. He faced the wrath of God. He was cut off from the land of the living and in a, in a word, he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of other people. He died a substitutionary death in the place of other people uh, for sins that he didn't 
uh, commit. And if we think of the, the cross as a transaction, as something that takes place, we can think, well, that's what he got, all that judgment. And we think about this transaction, we say, well, what did we contribute? There's a deal that's taking place here, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, propitiation, all, all the blessings of the Christian life, adoption, all flow out of this one uh, word, the atonement of Christ that was achieved on the cross. And when we think of, well, what did we contribute to it? Well, that passage tells us we contributed our grief, our sorrows, our transgressions, which is the, viol- you know, the violations of God's law. We contributed our iniquities, which means our sin. And that's all we contributed to the, the transaction that took place on the cross. He contributed uh, the active obedience, the actual doing and keeping of God's law. He, he contributed the passive obedience, the receiving of the penalty and the punishment for sin that we deserve. Uh, and he died in a way that was substitutionary, in a way that he says, I did this for you so that when you simply believe in me, I will give you everything that's mine. And so we'll see on Sunday, even the resurrection that he died becomes ours because everything is exchanged. He's punished in our place and we're given his perfect righteousness. And so it's, it's an incredible transaction. Some, some theologians call it the, the great exchange or that, that sweet transaction. <coughs> but that is really um, what took place on the cross. And so there's... So that's, that's the, I think, the, the simplest way I can explain those three terms. Active obedience, passive obedience, substitutionary atonement. Uh, some other people have different versions. You might, as you, you meet different people, bump into different people. Uh, one of them is called the moral influence theory of the atonement. And so you imagine it. Jesus lived a perfect life. And you say, well, what happened? What, what, what way does the atonement work for these people, a moral influence? And it, it works by way of example that if you look at Jesus, he lived a perfect life and the atonement affects us because we too should live a good life. And so he becomes an example that we copy. And, and it's true, the Bible does say that he lived a certain way and we should imitate the way he lived. He is held up as an example for us. But imagine what that does for us for our sins. If he was merely an example and not a substitute, it just doesn't work. We still have sin. We haven't dealt with it. We haven't, we haven't actively kept God's law. We haven't satisfactorily had the punishment sorted out. We haven't had all these things done. We're literally trying to be saved by our own works, trying to copy how he lived, and we're, we're never going to get there. And so you, you need that substitutionary nature to truly understand um, the, the, the transaction, the swapping of places that takes place on the cross. Um, but the, l- the last couple of things I'd say is that we need to look beyond the doctrine and the theology. I don't want anyone leaving here going, I've learned three new words or three new concepts without thinking that there's a person that did this for us. And so when we uh, think of a deal, the, the, the what happened on the cross is a great deal to be freely offered eternal life, resurrection, forgiveness of sins, propitiation. Uh, the penalty that we deserved has been paid for, and it's freely offered to us. It's a great deal. Uh, it's an amazing thing, but it was given to us by a person. So when you think, what am I going to do with all my thanks and gratitude? Where, where can I place uh, everything, the, all the emotion from knowing these truths and we return it to a person that died uh, for us. 
And lastly, I'd just say that, um, you know, if we, were to, if we were to stand at the end of our life and think, what, what is our most valuable possession? Maybe, <laughs> I don't know who would, maybe someone would say my house. Maybe someone would say my car. I'm not sure. What, what's something of value in our life? Maybe the people would be more important to us. But I think when, when we truly are thinking rightly, the atonement of Christ, what happened on the cross, is the singular most important thing that has happened to us. Every single blessing we have in the Christian life comes to us as if it's like a funnel, you know, like a, a funnel where you're pouring something into a little can. If we're that little can, like a petrol thing, you're trying to fill this thing up, all the blessings of God funnel through that one doctrine of the atonement. That's the channel by which all the blessings come to us in the Christian life. And so this is the most valuable uh, thing in our life. But let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, um, we do. We, we thank you for this day uh, and the things we remember. Lord, we do. We think of your life of obedience, um, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, which was impossible for us to keep, except for that one man, Jesus Christ, who did what no man has ever done, living a, a sinless, spotless life. Lord, we thank you for his receiving of the passive obedience, the, the punishment that was due to us that he bore for us. And Lord, we thank you for the, uh, the great cost to, to you and to him, and, but the, the, the freeness in which it's given to us. We thank you for such a, a sweet exchange, and we, we thank you in Christ's name.